0: Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com.
1: I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is our special holiday, December 2015 show, and we're luckily here today with Ken and Brian Grossman from Sierra Nevada. They're in town for a launch of their new beer, and we're really happy to be part, part of that today. Um, we're sponsored by Union Beer Distributors, supplier of world class ales and lagers. If you have any questions, you can tweet us at beer session. So it's a special show. I'm joined by Tony Forder from Ale Street News, who helped bring the show together tonight, and our winner co host. Ambassador Becerra from a Blind Tiger and a lot of, Lots of other... So, <laughs> Hi, Jimmy. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a while. I've been, I've been hoping for many years to get to talk to the, the, the Sierra Nevada team. Um, we had read a couple years ago The Audacity of Hops by Tom Alcatelli, which kind of gave me a sense of what was happening in the early days of the, of the craft beer movement. So I feel like I, I know you kind of well, Ken. Um, and you also got Bill Manley and Brian Grossman and Ken Grossman. So... I know, Tony, you spent some time uh, back in Chico in Northern California uh, many years back. And, uh, but let's go back to those days. So, can you? You had a bicycle shop, and you ended up having a homebrew shop, and you started a brewery. Actually, even back a little further, I started home
3: homebrewing uh, back in the late 60s. Uh, I had a, a neighbor who was a quite accomplished homebrewer, home, home winemaker, distiller. He was into all sorts of things, uh, fermentation and Alcohol based, and uh, he, uh, his son, and I were best friends from elementary school on. So, I was exposed to the smells and uh, the the act of making beer uh, from a pretty early age. So, I started homebrewing fairly young. Ended up uh, moving to Chico in the uh, early seventies and opened a homebrew supply store in nineteen seventy six. Um, at that point in time, there were really only a, a few small brewers that were surviving in this country. I went down and visited. Uh, sort of the first pioneering home brewer to go pro, Jack McAuliffe, in the late 70s, and uh, came up with the idea of opening my own brewery. Put my homebrew shop up for sale in 1978, uh, wrote a business plan, and put together a 10-barrel brewery from scratch uh, using cast-off dairy equipment and other food equipment, and um, we started making beer the, the end of uh, 1980.
2: It, it makes work? it seem so cool, right? sure so it easy. does, right? Yeah. PCK, right? Yeah. Oh, it was easy. <laughs> PCK. Cheers <laughs> to you guys. So what, what were some of the first beers that inspired you, Ken? I mean, you, you were a young guy. There weren't too many beers in America. Well, again, as a,
3: as a home brewer, I was a, a science major, chemistry major in college. And as a, um, as a home brewer, I experimented with uh, pretty much every style of beer I could uh, produce at home. Uh, back in those days, there really wasn't a lot of information about making good beer at home. Uh, Fred Eckhart, who just recently passed away, uh, I got a hold of his book um, right when I first started brewing, you know, right when it came out. And then Dave Lyons, the, the big book of brewing, was, was the English uh, sort of technical home brewing book that came out about that same time, uh, around 1970. And those books did show how to make good beer at home and, and offered a, a wide range of styles that you could you could brew. So I uh, experimented and brewed everything from ales and stouts and lagers and uh, a whole range of beers uh, um, using those recipes and, and inventing my own.
2: I mean, Bill, you're you're a creative guy working with Sierra Nevada. I mean, what's your take on, on, on the roots of, of this brewery? Because it's amazing that you guys, first of all, are still here. And I'm sure there are many times you had to thank yourself or somebody for being here. Um I don't know if you've got any stories that, that you're telling people about the origins, because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think
4: it's crazy just to think about. It's hard to really overstate the importance of it. And, you know, to talk to to Ken and some of the other folks who were starting up at the same time, it's kind of, you know, nonchalant. Like, oh, we're just doing this, you know. But if you think about everything that's happened in the past, you know, 35 years since, the beers like that have come out. I mean, it, it really was a game changer. And I like to try to think about what it must have been like. You know, back in the early days, trying to go and tell people about this beer that's, you know, it's bitter and it's it's got a weird flavor, not like almost anything else that was on the market and trying to say, hey, this is something that we made and, and you should try it. But having that be such a game changer like now that you mean there are so many breweries that are all you know kind of doing it. Craft beer is part of the culture. But then, I mean, it was like an alien ship landed, and you're, you're presenting this this beverage, you know, that just nobody knew what to expect and knew what to, knew what they were really getting into and just how different that has, that has come and how
1: hard it must have been, really. Yeah, the landscape was just so much different. I had a head start because I was from England, so, you know, I left real ale behind when I moved to the States. So when I actually moved up to—I was over on the coast directly east of Chico, Eureka, and— um, I had done some homebrewing before, so I began again up there, and I ran for this group called the Humboldt Homebrewers, and these guys were pretty advanced. I mean, they used to have these great parties twice a year. They had I, I, I went boxes, to some of those. and everything. <laughs> I, I yeah, I, I, I went think to you enabled insurance. some of them, too. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah, actually, they were my customers. Uh, some of the head folks from the uh, Humboldt Brewers were my homebrew shop customers in Chico because there really wasn't a lot of great places to buy ingredients in the North State. There were some good homebrew shops and. Southern California, where the Maltos Falcons started, uh, John Dom's shop and uh, in the Bay Area. They we had the Arcada Co-op. Uh, uh, well, Arcada Co-op was one of our earliest distributors. Um, they would send their truck over to Chico and, and haul beer back over to Arcata. Uh We did that br- very much
1: early in our uh, in our founding. Tony, when did you first taste or learn about Sierra Nevada Podia? Well, it was soon. I actually moved up to, uh, on, I think it was about, I think it was 80, 81. I, 81 was when I first came across the pale ale, and I'm like, wow, this is like a really good hoppy beer. You know, I, I like this. And then I started searching it out, and, uh, you know, the extra price that you pay over, you know, mainstream beer was it was well worth it. I mean, so back in those know. days, just to, to go back into, into
3: the history of what was around as far as breweries and beer styles. So in, in 1980, it was about the low point of the U.S. brewing industry as far as the number of breweries. Uh, we were down to roughly 45 companies making beer in America. There was a, a handful of, of small breweries, but they were mostly the old legacy family breweries that had survived Prohibition and opened back up again. And they were struggling and trying to compete against the, the national breweries at the time um, and were pretty much brewing what the big guys were brewing because they saw that as, you know, that's where the beer market had gone to in this country. Uh, ales were not so popular uh, so the the legacy breweries, as we call them, were emulating the, the lager styles of the big breweries. So there wasn't a lot of innovation going on there. And then in, in uh, 1978, when uh, uh, New Albion opened up, uh, between 78 and, and 81, there were six of us that had gone into business. Um, and I think really the, the first new brewery since Prohibition. Uh, the... Uh, the breweries that opened up were mainly run by home brewers. Uh, there's one exception. Uh, River City was actually somebody who'd been through the Davis course um, and had worked at a big brewery, I think Spros, and had, had started out uh, with a with a logger also, and sort of emulating what he had been brewing, uh, working for the big brewery. And he, he didn't succeed and, and went out of business after a few years. And then the other breweries that had opened up were really uh, home brewing roots kind of brewers, and they were brewing the the same range of, of beers that we were. Um, you know, top fermented beers, uh, usually bottle-conditioned because people didn't have the technology to, uh, to artificially carbonate or to naturally carbonate in, in pressure tanks. Um, we all struggled to, to find a market. Um, the, uh, um, the, the wholesalers or distributors uh, didn't understand what we were doing. The retailers, most of them, didn't understand what we were doing and neither did the consumers, so it was really a lot of education. We had to you know, take our beer to beer festivals. We had to do tastings with the restaurant owners or bar owners and, and let them experience you know, our beer. Um, and uh, truthfully, most people thought it was too strong, too Uh, had Too much flavor, too much character, much different than they were used to. Uh, But there was enough people who loved what we were doing that uh, we found a a market niche and uh, just continued to to grow with that marketplace.
2: You know, what's funny is um, we're drinking your ceremony (coughs) about pill ale, and just recently one of the distributors here is... I said, let's go back to some throwback beers. And did you ever think that your beer would be considered a throwback? <laughs>
3: <laughs> so when we uh, first came out, uh, we had about 37, 38 bitterness units, and it was a shocker to most people. And, you know, today, uh, you know, there's lots of IPAs in the 50, 60, 70, 80, or more. Um, 600. Bitterness yeah, yeah, that's units. a dollars dollars But back then, you know, our, ours was an eye-opener for a lot of people, and, and today I think the... Uh, the consumers' palates have gotten really used to and appreciate uh, hops and the, the intricacies of all the different varieties and flavors and aromas and you know, tropical fruit and you know, dank hops and citrusy hops and uh, ones that you know smell like pine and you know it's just a wonderful world of, of flavors and aromas that uh, that the hop varieties have. But back in those days, you know, we picked the hop that we thought was the most unique American aroma hop, and that was the Cascade. And at that point in time, the Cascade really hadn't found a lot of support. Uh, it had been developed a number of years earlier at Oregon State. And uh, the big brewers were used to brewing with European aroma hops. And when they smelled the, the Cascade, it had way too much you know, of uh, a different character, pine and, and citrusy characters, that they really didn't like it. And so it languished and, and really didn't uh, see much use with American brewers as an aroma hop until... Uh, ourselves and a, a few other breweries uh, decided to to focus on that. We we wanted to produce a American pale ale. We didn't want to produce an English pale ale and. and even though we could have used sort of the traditional uh, European um, ale hops, we had chose to, to, you know, really feature this American. So Cascade,
2: that was pretty new back
3: then. Cascade was pretty new. It had been around for a few years, but really wasn't widely grown and wasn't widely used, and certainly not at the levels we were using it. No, uh, I mean. public uh, public. We,
4: it was, was bar- it, right? it
5: was an Oregon State public varietal. Yeah, it's USDA, right?
4: Yeah, yeah I mean, that—that's that's, the tax dollars' hard at work right there, the, US, <laughs> <laughs> the USDA. It wasn't I a mean, yeah, proprietary hop.
5: Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah, the Cascades, uh, Centennial, so, Chinook, all, all yeah. the kind of classic sea
3: hops of the, the American brewing movement, I mean, they're all USDA hops. Yeah, uh, right? Al Honnold right. was the one who headed up that program. Um, well, he just recently passed away. but Oregon yeah. uh, uh, State, right? Yeah, uh, he, he had, had come up with these varieties and was trying to get an American... Uh, trying to get an American brewer to to use it, and um, we didn't have a lot of luck for a few years until ourselves and Anchor used it, and uh, a few of the other small breweries.
2: I oh mean, so Brian Brian Grossman, so you you were born into a brewing family. Yeah, think I not make cat food.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so what did you do to differentiate yourself? I mean, you're, you're growing up in family business. I mean, did you go to brewing school? You know, what what, what steps did you take to get more involved in it?
5: Uh, I mean, having Ken Grossman as your father is is a blessing and a curse all at the, at the same time. Um, <laughs> you, you know, I... Uh, I had, uh,
6: <laughs>
5: sometimes more curse and blessing. Um, I, I had these grand visions of uh, I'm going to go work at the brewery at a, at a young age and, um, you know, begged my dad for a job and, and finally said, okay, you know, I'll give you the opportunity. Where do you want to work, maintenance or in the brew house? And, uh, you know, naively I said oh yeah I want to work in the brew house come on and uh, so I show up at work and uh, I was presented with two buckets uh, <laughs> and it was go go clean the fermenters and uh, to this day man I wish I would have picked maintenance first but uh, <laughs> no, no I mean it was, um, it was So yeah, you're
2: I, your best friends with the people working in the brewery department.
5: Yeah I mean you know, I, I, he made me sort of cut my teeth in all the departments and uh, you know, progress through and, and um, actually spent quite a bit of time of maintenance, one of my favorite departments, uh, just due to the fact that you get to interact with the entire brewery, um, uh, which I find uh, very enjoyable to me. Um, there's nothing like a brewery but a brewery. Uh, they, the way they sound, the way they smell, the way that um, you just feel it when you walk in if something's wrong, uh, you know it, and I really enjoy that. So, uh, What do you drink when, you, when you're off hours? Cold beer, normally. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, I'm a fan of all things done well. So uh, I, like, uh, wines, I like well-made wines, like well-made whiskeys. Love well-made beers as well. I don't, uh, I don't just pigeonhole myself. I can definitely appreciate other people's crafts and arts with what they do. Um, but um, I'm very lucky to have to have grown up at Chico, which was very close to to both San Francisco with great uh, cocktails and, dil- and distilled spirits, and uh, you know, Napa, Sonoma area with great uh, wine, So. I was uh, obviously uh, an exposure to to great beer, so um, I like all things done well.
2: That's great. And Bill, how did you start working for Sierra Nevada? Uh, I've
5: got the craziest story there probably is
4: about how I got to the brewery. Uh, My background is actually in journalism, photojournalism, and uh, I was working for a newspaper called the Virginia Pilot in Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, I did a series of of stories about kind of craft beer from grain glass. I've been a beer geek for forever. Uh, home brewer for a really long time too, and uh, pitched these stories to the newspaper, and uh, um, they ran over a kind of series of consecutive weekends, uh, Wednesdays rather, and they were super duper popular. And, and <laughs> like, the weekend you know, been, of some uh,
5: people. What's that? The weekend of some yeah, it's my people. Weekend. Yeah, 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 for
6: sure.
4: <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, you've been. I was a foreign correspondent for a little bit, and you know, all overseas, and you come back, and you know, maybe five people write in, and you write a column about beer or something, and hundreds of people write in and tell you what, what an idiot you are. And so the the newspaper asked me to start writing more and more about beer, uh, and so I started writing a column. It got syndicated, um, and I was taking those columns and just like posting them on the internet. Ken read a column I wrote about um, Harvest, harvest. 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 it was the first year we did Harvest our our Wet Hop IPA in uh, in the bottle, and uh, on April Fool's Day, of all things, I got a call from uh, Joe Whitney, our uh, head of sales and marketing, uh, and said, "How, how would you like to come and live in beer mecca? And I was like, "Oh God, you know, I mean, I'd never been to California. Really, live ten
5: that minutes was a from a joke." First, yeah, yeah. seriously, I was like, yeah, it was yeah, thanks, yeah. buddy. Yeah. I like, oh, <laughs> uh,
4: never, uh, never really even been to California, live ten minutes from the Atlantic Ocean, you know. And I was like, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I just bought a house there, and uh, um, they're like, "Oh, come on out for the weekend and see what you think." And so I flew out to California, and. Uh, um, Sat down with Ken and Brian. Ken got me drunk in my job interview, which is awesome. That's we had.
5: A, we had at the time
4: we had like a twenty-two yeah. beer yeah. sampler or something at the, 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 the our restaurant Chico, and 18. Ken asked me to go through all of them and like tell me what tell me what you think. And so I did. And of course, I'm not one to leave one behind, so I finished all of these samples. And I remember filling out the HR paperwork and having to like, ask, what's my name? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> filling the address again. And uh, uh, you know, I remember it. And uh, um, so the, they offered me the job and. I was still kind of on the fence about it. And uh, over the course of time, and I drove down to Santa Rosa, actually, the Russian River Brewing Company, and hung out at uh, outside of Russian River. And I remember sitting on the steps of the bank across the street, and I called my wife back in Virginia. And I was like, I don't know. What do you think? Do you want to move to California? And she said, yeah, let's do it. So I flew back to Virginia, loaded up the, the dog in the car, and I drove to California. And my wife stayed back and sold our house. And we went. Wow. Uh, We're well, after
2: a great start here on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll back in a few minutes. All right.
0: In 1996, L. Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com
2: Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's our special holiday show, Peace and Happy December 2015 with the Sierra Nevada guys. Alright guys, so we're talking, Bill Manley's talking about what you have to do, go from the East coast? Yeah, the all the coast way from the
4: Atlantic Ocean to, to, to Chico, which uh, you know, I'd frankly never heard of Chico outside of Sierra Nevada. I mean, you, it's funny. You were talking about kind of the brewery and you know, its impact earlier. I mean, I'm, I'm exactly a year older than Sierra Nevada. I'm 30, 36. But I, when I hear, you know, I grew up in Chicago. When I hear Sierra Nevada, I think of the, the brewery,
2: not the mountain range. I mean, that's, you know, it's I think for, all, for a, a lot on of On that us. note, I will say I appreciate <laughs> that you guys don't tout your age because... I still feel like you guys are doing fresh things and you're new and different. Um, you know, for Anne, you worked so long with, with the Ginger Man and now Blind Tiger and Tap from 307. How many uh, different Sierra Nevada beers have you had over the
1: years?
6: I don't think I've missed any in New York. At least that's that's come through New York City, which I'm very blessed to have that happen. I mean, I don't discount that I work at some really great places, and I do a lot of writing, so, you know, samples and things like that. I'm, I'm really lucky to, to try a lot of things. Um, but, yeah, I, don't, I think it's, it's so exciting to see people come in. And still, we did a Sierra Nevada event at one of my bars, and people are coming coming in for it, specifically for it, still so excited, still, you know, we did the hop boils and a little uh, sensory panel, and are able to not just drink beer, but explain it, teach it, talk about it, put it into context, Um, you know, a bigger, a bigger, I guess, it it runs a little deeper than just what's in your glass, which I appreciate, and people were excited to smell different hops, and, and have it right into their beer, and smell the hop, and smell the beer, and make that connection, because I don't think a lot of, you know, the average person doesn't get to see that very often. So I, you know, the education component from you guys, I think is, I appreciate it. Well,
2: how, how did you go, grow from that? I mean, you had a brewery, let's, let's jump ahead, maybe 80s, 90s. You know, you're, you're, you're selling around the country.
1: How have you been able to keep, like, you kind of like your Sierra Nevada vibe going? Well, I, if I can <coughs> add on to that, like, you were known for a while, it was really just, I mean, when there was a Sierra Nevada release, it was big news, like, back in the 90s, whatever. Yeah. And then you started putting out a lot more different labels. What was the evolution of that?
3: Well, I guess starting back in you know 1980, when we were figuring out what we were going to brew, um, we uh, we had a bunch of old brewing books, and we saw this sign on the side of an old brewery that said ales, porters, and stouts. And we were like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do ales, porters, and stouts. And, and that was sort of our marketing plan, was uh, you know, something we saw in an old book. Um, and, and then we uh, you know, decided to do a dry hopped um, Christmas beer for our, our first year. Yeah, so we did celebration uh, way back when we first started. Uh, and I remember it was like eighty cases is all we made, and uh, it was wonderful. Just this, this uh, we had some really fantastic hops that I hand picked out of the field, and it was just a you know an amazing beer. And so then the next year we're like, well, let's do a barley wine too. So we added Bigfoot, and then after that we got so busy with um, just meeting demand for pale ale primarily. That we really couldn't make much more. Um, you know, we made a few experimental beers, but we were just uh, focused on trying to make enough beer to pay the bills. Um, and uh, as we talked a little bit earlier, you know, the, the marketplace then was uh, you know very hard to break into. It was not easy for a small brewer to get his beer on the shelf. Uh, you had to do a lot of education. And then, as we were trying to grow our company, even when we wrote our first business plan, we really couldn't borrow money. Uh, the banks would not loan us a penny. We went, shopped to what we thought was a great business plan to, to the banks in the in our community, and nobody was willing to give us a penny. And you know, if you think back to those days, breweries were going out of business at a pretty rapid rate. So, if you were a, a banker of any um, had any resources, you go look and look at the brewing industry, and the brewing industry was in a, a terrible place. And small brewers were struggling to, to stay probably there. Probably wasn't that
2: different from investing in a restaurant back
3: then. Yeah, I think it was even worse, though. I think you know there were only 45 breweries left, and, and one of the premier um, brewery analysts, um, Bob Weinberg, uh, was quoted. I remember the article came out right about when we were trying to raise money, saying that there's only going to be two, probably uh, maybe three breweries left in America in the next 10 years. And, uh, you know, here we're, we're taking our business plan to a bank, and they're researching, uh, you know, in, in whatever, uh, you know, the Internet was around then, but they're researching about the brewing industry, and they, they read this guy who's a Ph.D. and, you know, been vice president of IBM and worked for Anheuser-Busch, he says there's only going to be two breweries left in the future. It's like, why would I loan money to this to this little brewery trying to start up? So it was really tough to, to raise funds.
4: I heard it said one time that, like, back back then, and like, starting a brewery was like starting a car company today. I mean, like, yeah. who, you know I mean? The ones that exist are so huge, and then the little ones—you're just like you were destined to fail. This yeah. is a
5: bad idea, you know. Yeah, but there's still the Teslas that make it, you
4: know. Yeah, but few and far
3: between, real, me, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: I mean, just one, one out of you know every Brian, you drive A, a of. Tesla?
2: No, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, has a, he has a Toyota. <laughs> I, I, I drive to pick up a pickup tra- truck and a Jeep. Let's <laughs> change. So you, you guys, are right? I I have the Sierra Nevada celebration, which I like. So I'm trying to kind of get you through each segment, and we talk a little about the paleo and. Now the Celebration. But it, it's you something it. I, I've bought this probably every year, you know, for here at Jimmy's number 43, and it, but what what made this Celebration Ale so special? Well, it was,
3: uh, for us, the first beer we
2: dry hopped, and, and
3: um, we used uh, a combination of Cascade and Centennial, and uh, so the, the first year, I went up myself and picked out a baby field of really nice-looking Cascades, and we dry hopped with that, and... and um, so it's something we still do. We we you know pick the field we want to use in that beer, and uh, take the hops right from the field. They're they're dry and then immediately flowing down or driven down to, to Chico. So it's it's not a wet hop beer. It's a it's a beer that uses fresh picked hops, and we try to brew it within a few days of harvest.
2: Now I want to jump ahead because I, I know that um, you know through the, even the two thousands you kind of had a lot of the same things going on, but uh, not too long ago we did an event in New York where we we try to have breweries that had made beers with ing- ingredients that they had grown or were grown mm-hmm. near them, and that's when I learned about your estate series. And I'm, I'm interested in that because we're interested in agriculture on the network as well as beer. Tell us how, how you ever started doing those estate series and so, what cha- what changed you guys to get into that?
3: You know, So uh, our, our area in Chico used to be a hop growing region actually. Uh, we were at the north end of the Sacramento Valley, and hops were uh, actually planted along the highway when I drove my Volkswagen bus to Chico when I first moved there um, in 1972, there were hop fields along the highway on the way into Chico. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I knew what hops were. And then as a homebrew shop owner, I used to go to Yakima um, every year and buy my hops. But I think most people have never seen or heard of a hop. And, and um, t- today, there's you know a tremendous amount of, of more education about beer with what's happened with the internet and, and the explosion of craft brewing. But back in those days, you know, people didn't know if a hop was a grain or, or what it looked like, so I wanted to at least have, a, uh, have an experimental field so people could see the ingredients that go into beer. So we planted hops, I don't know, it's been more than a dozen years, I think, uh, um, and started growing them at the brewery, and then we decided, well, let's really go all the way and, and make an estate beer. So we have uh, currently about 100 acres of barley fields that we own, um, and we have uh, roughly 20 acres of, of hops that we grow as well. And I think well, we're, I think we're the only uh, that I'm aware of the only organic uh, state-grown, um, yeah. uh, beer. As far as, as far as we know, I mean, yeah. we, there could be very small guys yeah. doing something.
5: Well, it's a major oh, pain. In, right. well, it's a major <laughs> pain in the ass. I mean, it, it, it's, it's uh, not it, inexpensive, but yeah, it's very <laughs> difficult. We've got teams that that's all they do, and this is definitely not a beer that's brewed for profit. Uh, it's it's twenty or thirty or forty or hundred times some years more expensive for us to grow our own, uh, but. It's cool. It's fun. You get a machete and go out and harvest hops, and what brewery? <laughs> yeah, that? but that, I mean that's
4: the thing. I mean, rad. You talk about <laughs> you know kind of craft beer. What's more craft than kind of made, building a beer from like the honest to god the seeds to the glass, every step of the process, and kind of shepherding your own destiny, I guess, from every little bit. Otherwise, you you buy from you know, suppliers, and you're always trying to get the best quality you can out of that, which is which is great. But there's something different about you know kind of planning and tending to it and seeing where it's going to go and kind of knowing in advance, and everybody watching and waiting for these things to come do and get ready and you're ready to pick them. You know, as soon as they're picked, you've got to start brewing and have it go through. I mean, they're the people at the brewery when that beer is kind of coming across. I mean, everybody pays attention to what's going on with the hops. and I mean, to get. You know how many well, we people are working. A couple of yeah.
5: years ago, we
1: had to do yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we lost our IPA. full I barley. Was like, yeah, we lost that's one of the really things. Like everybody gets invested in, you, get, you know, <laughs> devastation. Yeah, yeah, you
4: know, we, we yeah. We we had to buy buy barley for that one, but it was, so it was, we made yeah. a black IPA. But but that's what, what I mean. Do I mean about
2: the Sierra Nevada vibe? Because you actually went, even though you know it cost more money, you still went and planted. Grains and, and hops. Yeah, but
5: that, that's just because we enjoy the hell out of what we're doing. We, we're, we're still family owned. We don't have a board or, or shareholders to keep happy, so we still do things because they're fun and cool and entertaining. Um, you know that, that's that's why we still do what we do. We've we've taken that uh, in a few other
3: areas. So we have on we have restaurants at both breweries in uh, Chico and Mills River, and we raise a lot of our own produce. We have a two acre organic garden in Chico that we. Fertilized with uh, the the waste products from uh, uh, composting um, food scraps and, and uh, that goes onto the fields to uh, to fertilize them. So we try to uh, come full circle. We've had our own herd of uh, of cattle for close to ten years as well. Um, so they're uh, naturally raised beef, and then they're finished off on spent grain and and yeast and a little bit of beer. Um, and that that's that the, sounds like fun. That's
2: uh-huh. the meat so we serve in a restaurant. Talk about why I should visit you guys in Chico. Um, Tell us how you started the beer camp because that's something that you know, a lot of people in the industry have, have participated in. Um, you have, did, did you go out there and for beer camp? No. Or you not, dying
1: not. to do that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> for an invite. <laughs> anyway, that wasn't
5: planned. Upon
3: a win. Some more beer guys
6: can I bring another So
3: a little history there. So we... we um, Uh, We started out with a 10-barrel brew house, and when we moved to our new brewery in... in This is in 1980. Yeah, and moved to our new brewery in 1988, we put in a used 100-barrel brew house I bought over in Germany. And then as we grew from there, we we bought a new 200-barrel brew house. And I really wanted a 10-barrel brew house again so we could start experimenting and and really do a lot of small batch stuff. So we put in a a 10-barrel brew house, and we had this very nice, state-of-the-art brewing facility and we realized that a lot of our uh, distributors or wholesalers, a lot of our retailers or restaurant owners and bar owners really didn't know how beer is made and didn't, didn't have a lot of uh, understanding of the brewing process. We started bringing them in and just setting up this program we called Beer Camp. And it was initially an educational uh, program to, to really spend a couple of days uh, with the bar owner, restaurant owner. Um, to, to educate them on, you know, what it takes to make a batch of beer. And, and they got to do everything from uh, come up with a recipe. They'd work with our brewers, and, and they'd have a vision, and our brewers would help them bring that into a recipe. And then they got to create a, a label and a brand so they could name it. Um, we would then go get the name trademarked and go through all the legal uh, registrations so that beer could be sold um, through their distributorship or at their, their restaurant or store so that 's the the beginning of beer camp, and then we thought well there 's a lot of consumers who also don 't know how beer is made or or some of them do, but have never really experienced you know doing it on a commercial level. so we started uh, bringing in some uh, consumers and um, sort of grew from there and so now beer camp is, is something that we still do uh, regularly with all those types of people, so whether it 's a restaurant owner. Or, or whether it's a a consumer who's really enthusiastic about beer, and they get to participate in the brewing process, and sometimes they come up with some really interesting Mm -hmm. and great recipes,
5: and we've taken some of those to market. It's a blend of uh, college science meets Willy Wonka. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
6: You
5: can actually say that again. Say that again, Brian. I said it's sort of a blend of college uh, science class meets Willy Wonka. And then Annie's. <laughs> no, I'm
6: just saying, peel that label off the pale ale. it might be a golden ticket.
5: I got a golden ticket. Yeah. Exactly. Chicken. Yeah. Got that idea. So
2: you guys are in New York. Just a stroke. You guys are in New York City now because you're launching a new beer. Mm. And uh, what is that? It's a it's some kind of goza. It is a goza. Yeah, uh,
3: we're, we're we've been working on this for quite some time. We started doing gozas a number of years ago. Um, yeah, actually, Bill I think was involved with the first. I was. And, um, I the so first. In, in beer camp and in our, our little small brewery, uh, we actually have a uh, now we have a half barrel brewery too. So we have a really small brewery. We still have the ten barrel, and in Bill's brewery we have a twenty barrel brewery. Um, so we, we do a lot of experimenting, uh, whether it's new yeasts or new styles of beer or uh, just coming up with uh, with interesting recipes. So we've been playing with gozas, and, and we had wanted to look at another beer to add to our portfolio that had uh, a pretty high sessionability and um, we like the Goza style. I mean, it's a blend of a uh, bit of tartness and
5: a little bit of... i was uh, pushing this beer for like three years with Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, this has been a bit of a... Well, can I, can I
2: tell you, this summer there was a big New York Times... Eric Asimov, who's our big... He's a yeah. wine writer Only writes a few beer articles a year. His summer beer this year was Goza, and he noted that in the Oxford Encyclopedia of Beer, it was one of the few styles that wasn't covered and that was kind of controversial didn't
4: even have a BJCP like the
2: you know the governing
4: body of like home brewing styles until the, the very new update that's maybe six months old maybe
6: the hot child now I mean everybody did, this is, it like is what it is, is. Yeah, we've we we had style guys style in Chicago
2: that's off color they make a the troubles so and it's like it's a wheat it goes you sort of see we drink a lot of it we've been drinking it yeah, for years so. yeah I
5: mean brewers nowadays are looking back at sort of their historical roots and trying to figure out you know what their fellow brethren did you know Years and years and years ago, and uh, and it is sort of dusting it off and taking a page and saying, "Wow, you know, look at how great some of these styles were." And obviously, we're adapting it to modern, you know, palate. And ours, our our new goes is uh, otraves, so it's brewed with uh, cactus, a pre-prepared cactus, and grapefruit as well. And uh, well, just a hint of coriander. We also have in there um, to to give a little bit more character. Yeah, we have our own, uh, we grow our own lactic acid actually on site as well, naturally done, which is also a big thing for us. Uh, You know, you can buy industrial lactic, that's not how we would like to do it. Uh, So we actually slipstream to the side, we create our own fermenters just for growing this acid up, uh, really nice tartness balanced with some nice salts. It's a beautiful uh, sort of tart, refreshing, um, really sessionable beer. They're excited. I'm excited to try it. Yeah. Has every
1: old style been recreated yet? No, I specific? don't know. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I mean, there's you know thousands
4: of just like kind of crazy regional mm-hmm. styles from all over the world, mm-hmm. and I mean you know Goza being a you know prime example of that you know a beer that was for all intent and purpose extinct. I mean, even before that, Whitbeer was, for all intents and purposes, extinct, if it weren't for Celis, you know, and then sure. see what happened to that. You know I mean, But there's, you know, like uh, Lichtenheiners and all these other kind of weird regional styles that predate high school in Germany, and then mm-hmm. little village styles from all over, you know, different places in Europe and Belgium that, you know... Uh, Back in the old text, there's just like little tiny references to that were you know just tiny little things and mm-hmm. parts of things that were in East Germany that kind of fell fell to the sands of history. I know, I you know, know, it's it's fun it's to a see whole that whole
1: slew of ingredients before yeah. hops came into sure, there, and that's that's yeah. a whole yeah. different yeah. see a whole yeah.
4: category of English yeah. beers before you know hops were Spruits, even like legal sir, to so yeah. use. Nettles,
5: yeah, stinging nettles, yeah. I mean he had to balance out the sweetness of the grain somehow. Sure. In other words yeah. would find you know yeah. whatever they could. I think I think it's kind of interesting
4: though, like dusting off drinkable history, but also kind of putting the the American spin on kind of what's going on that really anything goes, and you're you're able to. That to was a beer words. label. That actually that
1: was that, that was my was, beer. Anything, anything, anything else, goes.
2: There's a plug for my own little beer there. Anything was, goes. <laughs> well, I will say I, I like that one. Dusting off drinking was it dusting drinkable off, history. Drinkable history. He's well, away with the words. And what
4: kind of better history is there? Drinkable kind. To be fair,
2: you know I am having the best day of my life. This could be three shows, but it's only one. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Citizens Radio. All right. Peace and happy, it's our holiday show. When you hear this, it's, it's going to be almost Christmas. We're lucky to be in New York City in December 2015. Ken and Brian Grossman are launching their new beer tonight at the, the Pony Bar Upper East Side, and we've got a chance to do a special recording on the Heritage Radio Network.org. And just in case you haven't uh, made your end of your giving yet, Heritage Radio Network.org has some great membership from uh, individuals and businesses. You should check it out. Heritage Radio Network. Dot org. All right, so we've been tasting Sierra Nevada Pill Ale and then the Sierra Celebration Ale, and now we're on to the Torpedo uh, Extra mm-hmm. IPA. And I said a few years ago, one thing about my life is I got to drink beer in the best beer bars in town, um, and every once in a while I have to go to a grocery store, and uh, I don't know how to navigate it. So whenever I go to the grocery store, I buy Sierra Nevada Torpedo. Torpedo. Um, and I was introduced to it years ago at Blind Tiger. Uh so I love this beer. And, and tell us about how this happened, because we've kind of brought you from the, the origins now up to the, you know, 2000 sure.
3: So um, as we were um, growing over the years and making beers like Celebration Ale, uh, which we still use whole cone hops uh, in, and, and I think we're maybe the largest in the world now, I don't know, but we're one of the largest users of the natural cone hops. We don't use extracts or pellets or... Uh, you know any of downstream products in, in our, our uh, range of beers, other than hop honor, which we can talk about later. But uh, so one of the things we were trying to do was come up with a way to do more dry hopping with uh, with whole cone hops. And the way we've been doing it for many years, and we still do a lot of it, is we fill uh, these mesh bags full of the, the, the cone hops. And we put them into the storage tanks, and we pump the beer into the tanks with the hops in them like big tea bags. And the beer matures and ages sitting on on the hops. And that imparts uh, mainly the aromatic oils into the beer and very little of the bitterness. And so we were looking for a way to be able to do that and do more of it. And we came up with this concept, and and I started actually experimenting maybe 20 years ago with a way to fill a cylinder full of... uh, fresh cone hops and slowly pump the beer through, the, uh, through a pipe or through a cylinder. And the torpedo was just a, uh, a process that we came up with where we have these stainless steel tanks. They look sort of like big torpedoes, and they're filled with roughly 100 pounds of, of cone hops. And we slowly, as the beer matures in a tank, um, pump it through this uh, bed of, of uh, green hops and extract those oils and impart that into the beer. So the, the process uh, we called torpedoing and uh, the beer that we really um, launched uh, that process with was called Torpedo.
1: Love it. Yeah, I love it too. I mean, you know, a lot of us that grew up in Cervana <laughs> Pale Ale, um, you know, now Torpedo is the go-to beer. So.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a, as the... Uh, consumers' acceptance of of hops and of uh, uh, bitterness and hoppy character has grown with with uh, with time. I think a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of hopheads out there now that mm-hmm. uh, you know maybe find our pale ale a little bit um, low on on hopping. Although you know in our opinion it's it's probably the most balanced and drinkable um, beer out there, and, and maybe now could be called the original session. Um, pale ale um, but back in the day again it was a pretty you got American
1: pale right
3: yep <laughs> um, and so the the torpedo really just takes that to the to the next level and, and amps up the. the okay you know,
2: t- talking about all the friends we have in New York City and then the great beer scene we have now which has really come a, of age in the last five years I think Still at Blind Tiger, there's always a, a Sierra Nevada line, and I'm not trying to disparage you guys, but you know how many new breweries there are out there, and, and so many small breweries and local breweries, and and I love that. You guys are drinking uh, what, what we consider now the the top IPA in New York City, the other half, which is a brewery in Brooklyn. What do you guys think about that? That you had that in your pint glass earlier? Well,
5: it's a wonderful beer. Good, Good. It's great. really great beer.
6: I think. Can I ask a question? Um, a lot of these newer breweries that are coming in, you know, you ask them, "What was it that got you into beer? What got you into brewing?" Oh, well, the first time I had CRPL Pale, I and we obviously hear that all the time. Was there one specific sip that did that for you guys? Well, not for you, I guess. You're in the bottle.
5: I actually remember mine. So, uh, so I was. Uh, I'm very good friends with with Vinny at Russian River. Um, he got ordained and he married my wife and myself I mean one of my best Aww. friends in the world and uh, there was about a month where I was drinking nothing but uh, sour beers and uh, I remember very clear I, I uh, had a sour and uh, I had a couple of sours and, and I wanted one more and I walked down to the fridge and I was out and all I had all I had was our beers in our in, <laughs> in my fridge and so I was like, oh, I'll have a pale, and I opened up the pale ale, and not having it for about a month, drinking sours. I remember I called them, and I was like, "Holy shit, this yeah. beer is awesome!" <laughs> like it to- totally was this this aha moment. And I was like, "This is why Sierra Pale is so amazing. This is a really goddamn good beer." I remember it even.
6: It's great.
3: You know, for me, going back to uh, to my really early days, um, you know, as a home brewer, I was trying everything I get my hands on uh, imported beers and. And any domestic beer that still had some character left, and and there were a few, um, you know, the Green Death—we call it Rainier Ale back in the day. Um, <laughs> really? You know, was was pretty extreme, um, but I, I do remember getting some of the original Valentine's Ale. Um, I certainly was was drinking what was coming over from Europe, and some of it was great and fresh, and some wasn't. Um, but as a home brewer, I was trying to emulate those. So I was brewing you know, really hoppy, really malty, you know, high-character beers as a home brewer. Um, so as far as, I guess, if, was there an aha moment for me? Um, it was probably as much of, uh, of being a home brewer with a lot of other serious home brewers. Uh, I mean, we were propagating our yeast, and we were doing a lot of things. So people were pushing those boundaries uh, in the group I hung out with back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s.
2: It's really interesting talking to you guys because like, I'm going to plug the Audacity of Hops book. I love it, mm-hmm. and it was the first book that I read that really made me think about the early days of, of craft beer, which you you were part of. Um, let's. I don't want to ask an obvious question, but I have to. West Coast versus East Coast. You know, we, you know, then you guys were kind of pioneers, but um, you know, you, you've, you've come to the East Coast now. You're in Asheville, North Carolina, um, and I understand why it was some issues with distribution. Well, I mean,
5: transportation, sustainability is our company ethos and shipping you know heavy water and glass cross country isn't the most sustainable thing to do I mean, it makes much more sense to brew on the east coast from an environmental impact uh, not just a financial impact it's hugely about the environment you know the east coast west
3: coast rivalry that uh, was <laughs> maybe 2020 20, I don't know 20 years ago probably is really Pretty much mitigated now. The, yeah, the, like that, the, the the East Coast guys know how to use hops now. I mean, back back, <laughs> <laughs> back, I
1: agree. Uh, yeah. back, back in the early days, though, there was. You Who know, uh, started it, the West Coast style again? Did, like, yeah. the West Coast style, yeah, that just came out, out, out a few years, yeah. couple years ago, right? But
3: that was. But I mean, the you know thing. the the brewers that were on the West Coast that were you know making waves. Uh, we're making, you know, you know, with Anchor with Liberty Ale and and us with Celebration and some of the other hoppy beers that that uh, we were producing. And there was, you know, a handful of, of quite hoppy beers coming out of the Northwest. Um, and most of the Eastern beers at the time, again, this was twenty some years ago, were malty and pretty restrained in their use of hops. And um, there 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 got to be a bit of a joking rivalry about it, you know, the West Coast versus East Coast stylistically. Now I think you know it's plenty of great East Coast hoppy beers, and, and,
4: and from all over. I mean, it's not. I mean, you know, the Midwest is rocking really good IPAs nowadays. I mean, to be the, all the IPAs coming out of New England, Vermont. specifically like Vermont. I mean, Lawson's Finest and all those guys, Trillium, uh, all, all making incredible IPAs. And then, yeah, I mean, it's good. Good beer is good beer, and kind of stylistic choices. I don't. I don't feel like any of that's really hung
5: up by geography these Oh, things. we have a little one going on. I mean, this year we're doing uh, beer camp again, and we invited... Yeah, uh,
2: yeah but that's, that's friendly, like, thrown Well, we invited yeah, a bunch exactly. of brewers. That's going to be
5: interesting. Yeah, we, we,
2: Tell we, us about it. Well, you're on the East Coast. this way. East Coast, you're in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. And Justin Kenny just walked in, our producer. He's from that area, too. So what are you doing differently... In Asheville, North Carolina, than you did in Chico. Oh,
5: we've got a little father-son rivalry going on right now that, that uh, you know, we've got the way that we divide the country is in six regions, uh, just respectively, and uh, regions one, two, and three are, are West Coast-centric regions, and, uh, and four, five, and six are, are East Coast-centric regions, and uh, four, five, and six get a brew, a brew uh, in North Carolina with me, and one, two, and three get a brew in Chico with him. And I told them that we'll look at Beer advocate, and I
0: guarantee four, five, six years.
1: Well, my partner Jack Berman was just down at the last beer camp, and these are you know, these guys, and they decided to make a mango double IPA. So, <laughs> and it's in the the latest Ale yeah, News. 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 it's in It's a great, great article. Mango
5: Libre. But no, I, 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 I mean beer I, it's <laughs> in our in our production beers, obviously our goal is to make the consumer not know where their beer came from and there's times where uh, production wise we have to, to each brewery respectively has to either uh, cover for the other one or we can do the brands independently and the whole goal always is the consumer never knows the difference between the, the beer they're drinking. Every pale ale should taste like the one you had before and the one you have after. So um, since
2: we're here in New York City I and mean, we, we just got in this week a keg of Sierra Nevada. You are a a float, you're
5: actually a floating area that you can get fed from either brewery. Um, Moving forward, we just put on six new uh, storage tanks that actually just got sat uh, this last week. So um, that will take uh, that will take us up to about 750,000 barrels. And uh, when that totally goes online in February, New York will probably just be fed by North Carolina. But once again, anywhere can be fed by any. I'm very
2: happy with this. And, and, and since you're listening, this is our holiday show. This is my beer at Christmas this year, Sierra Nevada celebration. So I'm telling people it's brewed in North Carolina. It
4: could be. Your celebration is probably from North Carolina. Actually, really, the Pale Ale and Torpedo are both from
3: Chico. And New York is sort of a funny shipping state,
5: which which is very
4: surprising.
3: Um, we can sometimes ship from Chico to New York cheaper than we can from Asheville to New York because it's like um, the of business business thing. Thing. Yeah, exactly. let's,
2: let's get Justin Kennedy, our producer. He's from Asheville, North Carolina. So for you, I'm not from Asheville. I'm from Virginia. Wherever right. you are, <laughs> <laughs> but he always Close region enough. four. Close right, <laughs> he goes there enough that I think he's from there. But and you know the guy's wicked weed and all that. Yeah. What does Sierra Nevada opening in Asheville, North Carolina mean to that? That area. Oh, I think it was huge.
4: huge. I think anytime anyone from the West Coast is looking to open a brewery on the East Coast, Asheville is. Obviously, the first choice with uh, the Belgium opening, and then Oscar Blues before that, and you guys
2: uh, kind of. Well, familiar. you are from Asheville, North Carolina, and maybe and maybe the shoots and maybe <laughs> the I mean, shoots. I heard they're looking at Roanoke,
4: Virginia, which yeah. is even well about the same distance from where I grew up in Virginia
5: to uh, between halfway between there and Asheville. Um, are you living there, Brian? Yeah, for about the last three years, and I got wicked weed guide stories for you. So. <laughs> oh,
2: I'm sure you do. <laughs>
5: um, I got some stories for you, <laughs> but tell. So, so um, you're in this scene there. Let's just since. I
2: mean, I always think that Justin is from Ashford North Carolina, because he goes there all the time, yeah. and we. Know, so it's also a Wicked Weed stories so and a little local North Carolina beer story.
5: Oh, I mean, you know they they have been having some wonderful success of late, and and uh, like any brewery, you know they're in, uh, they're in a growth cycle, and uh, the. Having Ken Grossman as your father is a blessing and a curse. All at the same time, I learned you know, refrigeration and, and electrical and everything. And I get a phone call from Walt at Wicked Weed saying, oh, shit, my reefers don't work. You know, Can you troubleshoot this thing? And we do some over-the-phone troubleshooting. And, and basically what happened is he had put on, him and, and, him and Luke uh, had put on too many fermenters too quick and their cooling system wasn't sized for it. They didn't have enough glycol. They, didn't, they weren't in a good spot. So it was a straight-up scene out of Breaking Bad, and I call him. and said, no problem. I got, I got everything you need. Come on to the brewery. So a white panel van shows up. We unload four empty barrel, 55-gallon barrels. Uh, I film full of glycol. We fork <laughs> them back in the white panel van, and the thing takes off, you know, just like the handshake, uh, handshake take on it. But, uh, no, I mean, we've got lots of really great friendships uh, with all those brewers. And we had another brewer in town. Their kettle broke, um, and we sent our welding teams over there to weld up their kettles. And I can't tell you how many tri clamps I've given away. Uh, you know, brewers in need. Um, we always keep spare parts on hand, and uh, and most of the time, you know, the the respective brewers always come back and. Uh, and, uh, and, and make it whole again. But no, it's a really great brewing community. Yeah. I it's love amazing. hearing
6: things like that yeah. in this
4: climate. Yeah. 28 breweries no, more in than western that. North Carolina. 30, 35 in western North Carolina. I and thought it was like 43 now. Like Asheville, it's, it's ups, an obscene. I space. would joke about I drive past five breweries to get to my brewery in the morning. And it's good. It like <laughs> that like goes out joke. of business, a brewery starts Yeah, up. yeah. I mean, yes. just over the last five years, uh, you know, Asheville was always kind of a great local beer town, mm-hmm. but now they're... Having some new breweries that are opening up that are uh, getting national attention, like Wicked Weed and Burial, Burial. Uh, Highwire I think is doing pretty well. So yeah, it's, man, we're it's like, an exciting place, and I think yeah. these guys are you know, I mean
2: obviously they're the big guys in town, but they're fitting right in with you know the stories and uh, Brian. Hey, you, has got, you guys have a, a great community, and a, even your reps. That's another question. Maybe it's for another show, but I feel like when I talk about the vibe, I feel like that the reps that I've met who are working for Sierra Nevada somehow they they understand what you guys are about. And what did you do when you went from just being in Chico from California to other states? How did you keep this, this kind of identity going, which is kind of very hard to do. You don't feel corporate. You know, you guys still feel like you're authentic and you're the founders and
5: no
1: suits here. Well,
2: (laughs) they have their own suits.
1: I I
5: spilled on the uh, lunch. They're all wearing Sierra Nevada gear. But,
2: I mean, honestly, tell us. I mean, what do you think you did? Well, I mean,
3: initially we didn't have a sales force. We couldn't afford it. And our beer was really sold by word of mouth. and, And we were, I guess, pretty opportunistic when we started expanding our distribution. We went into regions where people you know had some food culture some you know wine and and you know we took advantage of the fact that there were marketplaces around the country that were seeking the kind of things we were brewing so portland oregon and um, colorado boulder denver um, you know, boston uh, and eventually new york but uh, san francisco um, yeah san francisco san diego I mean, we we got into those areas with very little support from any sales force and then as we you know, needed to add salespeople, they sort of had the, our, our ethos, you know, we brought them on slowly. We were a um, a beer-driven organization, not a sales-driven organization, and so I think our philosophy really has been, you know, it's about the beer, and you know, we, we now support a lot more folks on the
5: street, but, you know, they understand that, you know, we're a brewing company, we're not a marketing company. People know who we are, and it's very clear the relationship that they're getting in sort of from day one, it's- this is the company. This is what they do. This I and mean, the outside looking in, the inside looking out. No, no, it's great
2: just sitting with you guys and, and, and talking to you. And I know that you guys are hands on and you're still still making great beer and everything. Last question, Ann.
6: Is there really a clinic at the uh, <laughs> at your brewery? Because the employee culture and everything I've heard about and read about and seen firsthand is such like. Just something so that more more people could really benefit from and learn from.
3: So both breweries have health clinics. Oh my um, goodness! Chico has a, a doctor on staff. Uh, Doctor or nurse practitioner five days a week um, available for walk ins. Uh, uh, Mills River has a doctor and um, We're two, doc- two, doctors two days a week
6: in walk ins. And daycare center?
3: Daycare so, center in Chico. We don't uh, have a daycare center yet in, in Mills River, but that. We you know. have a nice yoga studio
2: yeah. and <laughs> really nice. We, well, we an no, i so tell you why, right, because the employees have to get to know each other. in in North Carolina then get married and have kids, right? you got a lot of those. (laughs) Then you got the daycare, right? Well, there's a little bit of that. I mean, last night we had a... We had kid
4: Christmas party and there were more kids under two than I've seen at a company (laughs) Christmas party in a long time. We were talking about that. Like, uh, Ken Grissman really is kind of (laughs) <laughs> the reason for the season in North
5: Carolina.
3: So we had our
4: kids' party last
5: night. That's your new beer. The reason for the season. The big barley wine. I got yeah, nothing better yeah, to do. Well, exactly.
3: so anyway, last night we had our kids' party with Santa Claus. Uh, and uh, On Saturday night, we had our employee party with
5: 600 people. uh, 700. 700 people. Strippers? No. No.
6: Jimmy. It's
5: a family show. Family show. Come on. (laughs) Mrs. Claus doesn't perform well, you know. (laughs) It's Ms. Claus. (laughs) So you think
2: going forward in a couple years, will uh, North Carolina be more of a destination than Chico? uh,
3: Mills River is definitely a destination right now. I mean, Mills River is a...
5: Um, we've got to take 30-plus years of knowledge set that we've developed in Chico and start with the green field. I mean, when we did Chico, as my father was saying earlier, you know, there was no preference on sort of the customer engagement side of it. It was all just the beer would sort of sell itself. And, and today's uh, you know, landscape is grossly different, and there is such an importance on the customer that, that we had the ability with a green you know, field and sort of an open slate to paint the brush that we wanted to uh, you know, today, and it's, it's very different.
1: It's, their tourism is alive and well, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's huge. Tony, yeah. last question for, for Ken and Brian. I think they sort of answered when I was asking about other ingredients. It seemed like you're constantly experimenting and researching yeah. with a half-barrel system and the 10-barrel, so I'm sure we could expect some stuff. Next.
3: Well, last year we produced and registered brands this year so far. Yeah, So we've done over 200 brands this year. This over year alone. We call ourselves
5: Malt Disney. My last (laughs) question. (laughs) A
2: few years ago, there was some kind of a monastery brewery in California that you guys either took over or partnered with.
3: A little little history there. So so just north of Chico is a Cistercian monastery um, of of the Trappist Order. And uh, they they, they contacted us to help them with the... a project, and and um, we thought it'd be fun to do. So we make an Abbey beer. We're, we're, we brew it, so it's not a Trappist beer, but we do brew it for um, supporting their their mission. Um, and they've been restoring a um, 12th century 12th century uh, uh, chapter
4: house, which is a portion of a, a Cistercian monastery. And yeah. yeah, we've done it now uh, since 2011. And, yeah, uh, and Spain. Yeah, and uh so they're they're restoring this monastery and the monastery's got a big long history, but it ended up in California and uh it's probably more than you want to get into, but uh they're they're rebuilding this this thing on their site and so they're they're raising some funds to do that. But it's been a really fun project for us too. We get to step kind of outside of what people expect for Sierra Nevada, specifically into the Belgian styles. And plus uh the monks themselves, I mean part of the the ethos of these monks, right, is, is to work and to pray. So they actually work on a 600-acre working farm. And so we're able to use ingredients that they grow on their farm in the beers themselves. And we, we work kind of hand-in-hand hand, hand with the monks who work there. They're really great guys, in fact. And uh, try to incorporate something that they grow on their farm in, into the beers and then kind of release them to be a, kind of a true collaboration. Uh, yeah, it's been, been been
2: really fun. It's been a good project. That's great, Ken. Uh, just it's our first time talking with you. Anything else you want to say to wrap it up? No, it's been a been a blast. I appreciate the invite. And um, next time in
3: New York, hopefully we can get together.
2: Please, and, and Brian, what's the, the the beer that you're releasing in December here in New York City?
5: Uh, the, we're releasing Ultra Vase. Uh, Ultra Vase. We, 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 we've been saying uh, sandwich with <laughs> some fun. Uh, we're actually kicking off two beers. Uh, we're kicking off also a tropical IPA for uh, the uh, seasonal coming up uh, after Selly. So we'll be tasting Ultra Vase tonight as well as our tropical All right. IPA.
2: We're doing a special show. It's the holidays, peace and happy. It's December 2015. You're listening to the background of Jimmy's number 43. I think some kegs just got <laughs> yeah, delivered. Yeah, that's All right. It. So thanks to our sponsors, Union British to bring this podcast to you tonight. Thanks to Ken, Brian, Bill, Tony, Ann, and Justin for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Corboni. Thanks to our producer, Justin Kennedy, and our engineer, Jack Inslee. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network.